Hello, hello. Good morning, everyone. You guys ready to do some work? All right. We're going to be getting into a book called Hebrews, which is in the New Testament. And yeah, if you're familiar with Hebrews, you know, all right, we're about to do some work right now. Uh, but it's an awesome book. Um, it just is, it's just so rich with basically... Um, it's written for, well, directly to Jews, trying to persuade them, basically, in the fact that Jesus is superior to everything they had before. In fact, they, the hope we have in Christ is so far superior to what they ever had in the past. And there's so much to that. Um, and basically, because if you grow up in a tradition like that, you hold that very dear, like the Torah, right? Passover, all these sacred traditions. But Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all of those things. And so the, the Torah and the Passover and everything was actually was about Jesus. And sometimes we don't think about it like that, but it's really true. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Um, so you can go back and you can look and you can see all these, all these elements that prefigure this coming Messiah who would be the answer, not only to the problems facing Israel, namely sin, which had always dogged them their whole history, if you know anything about Israel, um, but also for the whole world. So Jesus comes as a messianic savior, not just for the Jews, but also for everyone, every nation, every tribe, which was what was promised to Abraham, that through his seed, the nations would be blessed. And we're an example of that here this morning, aren't we? Singing praises um, to Jesus this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you have a, a, a phone with an app on it, go ahead and pull that out. We're going to be going uh, to Hebrews chapter 5. And don't let the verse... The span scare you. We're not going to be here till five o'clock tonight, but um, I have 30 minutes to do a lot, so we're going to be moving, okay? But we're going to be look at, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter five, verse 11, all the way to Hebrews six to about 12 or, or so. We'll see how that works out. Um, get a drink. But this, it's a difficult book. There is, there, Martin Luther struggled with this book probably more than he did James. And he got frust so frustrated with James, he called it an epistle of straw. He didn't like it. Because he couldn't understand certain sayings in there. Like, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's like, what? You know, for Martin Luther, that was like, you know, from the devil's mouth. Like, how could James... He's saying that, and so he, he kind of rejected it, in a sense, as having any doctrinal um, value. It has, has some value, but just doesn't have value as far as the gospel goes. Um, he wrestled with Hebrews in the same way. In fact, uh, we're doing a Bible study on it, and we've been wrestling with it, having some really good dynamic discussions, but he, he said it was a, a letter that was full of hard knots. Like you're reading along, oh, fine, 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 boom, hard knot. Did you ever get a hard knot in your shoelace and you try to get it out and you pick at it? It's, it's like that with these verses. You've got to pick at them. Because what we know is this is inspired by God, right? To bless his people. And every word is truth. All scripture is God-breathed and useful, right? So that's, this is our running assumption right now. So if we run into something that sets us back or seems to be in conflict with other teachings of the Bible, we don't give up on it. We press into it. We pick at it. We pick at the knot. And so we're going to do a little picking this morning, okay? Um, all right, Hebrews chapter 5. Now, as I said before, one of the big things that the writer of Hebrews is doing, and we don't even really know who that is,
Notice how he does this. I'm going to begin in, in chapter 5. It's, it's fascinating because he quotes the Old Testament, which you would do, right? To show how the Old Testament is speaking about Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, here are his words. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a different thing. I have not come to put them away. I have come to fulfill them. I've, I've come to be the reality to which the Old Testament speaks. And then he rebukes the Jews at the time who were having real troubles with him, saying, you diligently study the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Um, what's next? Numbers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to keep going because I'm going to reveal my ignorance. But these are the, all of it testifies about Jesus. And so when you come to Hebrews chapter 5, yes, he quotes Psalm chapter 2. If, and you see that if you're looking down at uh, chapter 5, verse 5. So Christ did not take this honor upon himself of being a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Interesting statement. Because what the apostles understood that to be was today, the day of his resurrection, he has been ushered in, honored, glorified, coronated as a son of God. Now, of course, he was the son of God before that, but there was something special that happened with the resurrection. He was elevated to majesty as a king. And if you look at Psalm 2, it's about kingship. He is now king of the world. Even though you don't see it, he is king of the world, elevated to the right hand of the Father. And then he goes on to say, and he says in another place, that would be Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. Speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now we would look at that and we, as Gentiles, we say, Melchizedek, what does that mean? But we need to go here, okay? We need to see the substrate of truth that we stand on. So if, if you have your Bibles, go back to Genesis 14. Because I believe there's at least, I could find at least five ways that Melchizedek signifies Jesus. At least five. And this is going to relate to communion as well, as we'll see. But Genesis 14, this is where Abraham meets Melchizedek, which was 2,000 years before this was written, all right? 1,000 years before the psalm was written that said that Jesus would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So here's the expanse that we're talking about. It's like the Grand Canyon. You guys there? Genesis 14, 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. What are we about to do today? He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. So here comes Melchizedek blessing Abraham then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of his belongings. Now, how do we see Jesus? Melchizedek, we see Jesus in the name. Melchizedek means Melech, king. Zedek, righteousness, king of righteousness. Who's the king of righteousness? Jesus. He's the king of Salem, which is Semitic from the word shalom, which means... King of Salem, which would then become Jerusalem, 
city of peace. Who's the king of Jerusalem? Jesus. Not only that, and this took a little bit of digging, but Melchizedek was in Salem, which was in Canaanite territory. It's where the Canaanites were. So scholars think that he was either a Canaanite, an Amorite, or a Jebusite. He was not a Semite. He did not belong to the line of Shem, which Abraham derived from, which would then lead to the Jewish people. He was in a whole other line out here. He was a Gentile. So here's a Gentile, not a Jew, priest of the Most High God, blessing Abraham. What does Jesus do? But he comes and he brings in the whole world. He reaches out to Jew and Gentile and brings us in. Third way, we see Jesus in Melchizedek, prefigured. What else does he bring? He brings a meal of peace, which is what they would have done in the ancient world. Two leaders, two kings, getting together, having bread and wine, signifying peaceful fellowship. What are we about to do today? Bread and wine, signifying a communion meal with each other and with Jesus, signifying peace. We come in peace. He comes in peace. We come to him in peace. All these things speak about Jesus. And we could just go on and on, and we're not going to because we only have so much time this morning. But this is, what, this is the substrate of truth. Like when you stand on something, you're standing on something rock solid, And this is what the writer of Hebrews is laboring to show uh, his Hebrew brothers and sisters in Christ who had become Christians. Now, he stops, though, midway, and he kind of calls a time out. And he does this in verse 11. And he says to them, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Literally, um, Dull of hearing. So apparently he's been through these things before and it just hasn't sunk in. And somehow it's just bouncing off. They're They're not taking it in and he's becoming concerned about them. He said, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. And it doesn't seem to be that they need a, a, an accommodation for some sort of learning disability because he goes on to say, in fact, though by this time you ought to be, that's a moral, that has moral implications. So by this time, you ought to be teachers. Like, here I am teaching you, but by this time you should be able to teach others the very things I'm teaching you now. So apparently they've heard these things more than once. You ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Now that's important because not only are they not taking on new information, building that substrate of truth by which they will stand firm in Jesus, not only are they not taking on new things and growing to maturity, they're losing the things they have. Right? Do you notice that? He said, we need to teach you elementary truths all over again. So there's some form of detachment in which you see they're either going to mature and move forward or they're going to lose what they have. Okay, and we're going to see this develop throughout this passage. So he's getting very pastoral here, very honest with them. And he goes on to say, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So this is not optional. Like learning about the depths of your faith is not an optional thing. He seems to be saying, no, you must move on to maturity. Because if you do not move on to maturity, you're going to lose even what you have now. Almost like this idea that we're not static beings. We're either moving forward or backward. We're either growing or we're being depleted. We're either being strengthened or we're being weakened. 
Okay, and we're going to see this come up later on. We're not static beings. We're dynamic beings, constantly being changed by someone or something. And he goes on to say, and this is why it's important, he said, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So these truths are practical in that they make you wise to move out into the world, and it changes how you perceive the world, and now you can make distinguishing judgments between good things and evil things, and you become ever more adept at negotiating, ever-changing situations, because as we know, right? Look Look at our world in the last two years. It's not the same world. And the challenge is, do you have the wisdom and the depth to be able to discern good and evil through all the changes that are coming into your life? In fact, Jesus, just a powerful statement he makes in Matthew chapter 6 is, the eye is the lamp of the body. It's a metaphor, but the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your body is full of darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What does he mean there? I think he's saying an eye is your perception. It's how you perceive the world. It's how you perceive yourself. It's how you perceive what, what, val- what is valuable. It's your perception trained by the word of God giving you wisdom. And a person trained by the word of God and will of God has wisdom, and then the course of your life is full of good fruit and flourishing. That is your, it's a metaphor. Your body is full of light. He doesn't mean you actually glow, right? It's this idea that your life will be full of flourishing as you go through making discerning judgments about what is wise and not wise, what is true and what is not true in ever-changing situations. But then this last statement he makes is, I think, particularly profound when he says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What does he mean by that? I think if you are to the point where you believe foolishness is wisdom and you pursue it as if it's wisdom, how destructive will that be for you and other people? This is a great truth that we've seen demonstrated throughout humanity. How is it that a German people can try to wipe out a whole ethnic group? And how is it that they could do that even though they knew the war was over? They sped up the killing process. Why would you do that unless you thought it was the solution for the world? And that's what they called it, the solution, right? So how great, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Because you're going to pursue that with zeal as if it's righteous. So here's the thing. He's saying, unless you're maturing and growing and learning, this isn't just about Bible study. It's about taking on the wisdom of God. It's about shaping your perceptions so that you can discern good and evil. Now he goes on to say, therefore... Chapter 6, verse 1. Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. So here he's saying, look, you've got to move on to maturity because if you don't, you're going to lose what you have. So let us move on to maturity. Let's leave aside the elementary teachings. And I think what he may be talking about here, maybe some baptismal teachings, maybe things they would have received as they were initiated into the faith, some initial basics of the faith. So he goes on to say, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There's a lot there. That's a lot of teaching. But he considers those things elementary, things they would have learned up front, right? And God permitting, we will do so. Now, if you have the NIV, you're missing a word here, which I have the NIV. I'm missing the word, but the word is for. 
don't know what Jake has up there. ESV. Yeah, could you put that up there? Four. There it is. See? Don't take, take, don't take my word for it. There it is. But that's really, it's really important because, and I don't know why the NIV, they do this a lot. They take out these important logical connections, which t- shows you the reasoning of the Holy Spirit, really. Um, and, and I think they might do it for aesthetic reasons, like it, it's smoother, easier to read. But no, we don't want that. We, what we need is the reasoning of the Holy Spirit, Right? How is the Holy Spirit thinking? Because I want to think like that. So he's saying here, and we're going we're to distill it. He's saying, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. For it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. What? Hard not. Distilled down to four, let's go on to maturity. Four, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. What? Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. All kinds of problems. That's a problem. What does he mean? He goes into a the agricultural metaphor. He says, for, again, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God, right? But the land that produces thorns and thistles, also having the rain falling on it, but producing thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed, in the end it will be burned. That's a strong warning. And I think what he's saying there is, I am now in this letter. This, these are the waters of God falling upon you. They're, they're falling upon you. So take it in, mature, right? Become wise and discerning, knowing good and evil, bearing good fruit, and you'll receive the blessing of God. But if the land, if the water falling on you produces thorns and thistles, where do we first read about that? It's back in Genesis 3 with the fall, right? Where God curses the earth and it produces thorns and thistles. It's definitely a statement of cursing through this metaphor. Um, Now he's speaking to Christians, right? These are people who have been baptized, who have confessed Jesus, okay? And he's bringing these very strong warnings to them. Now, the first thing I want to say, and we're going to come back to the impossibility word here because this is really the the troubling word, right? Um, First, I want to say that when he says fall away, he's not talking about stumbling in some particular sin, and I don't think he's even talking about wrestling with sin. Like we, we go through times in life where there's a particular sin that dogs us and it's every day it's a fight, right? You're confessing so many times you're wondering if Jesus has enough patience left in him to hear us once again, right? That happens. It's happened to me. I've been in those dark places. Um, but I don't think he's talking about that. To fall away is something different. And he gets into this in Hebrews chapter 10. I think he's speaking about the same dynamic when he says, notice the similar, this is chapter 10, verse 26. This is just as troubling. But he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That's troubling. But I think 
the important point here is that he's warning us, if you go into a life now, after you've received a knowledge of the truth and you deliberately pursue sin, that, you, that is, your life, your life is now shaped by sinful desires. You've turned your back on Jesus. And that's where he puts this antagonistic aspect. You're crucifying him. The people who crucified Jesus were antagonists of him. So these are people who fall away are now deliberately living a life of sin. And what he's saying is there is no sacrifice for that. Right? There is no sacrifice for that. That is, it is not effective for that. Um, That is to say, Christ's death is sufficient for every and all sin from the beginning of time into the future, but it's not effective for every sin. The only way Christ's life becomes not just sufficient but effective is by someone coming before God with a broken and contrite heart and saying, Lord, I am sorry. Please have mercy on me. (sighs) Washed. Not just sufficient, but now effective. You are cleansed. You You are set free. But I think what he's warning us here is in taking comfort, a false comfort, because we can turn grace into a license to sin, right? Jude. Luther also struggled with Jude. <laughs> but here he's, he's talking about it's the possible for us to know these things, and the knowledge of these things works against us. Right? We can talk so much about God's new mercies. His mercies are new every morning. That, you know, God, you know, we can, we can quote, we can say these things, and we can then presume upon God that he has forgiven me even if I have not come before him with a broken and contrite heart. Right? We can go overboard on that. And I think this is what the writer of Hebrews is warning the people against. Um, And so this becomes the important thing, and I think the main point is that grow and mature in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is not optional. It is not something you can dispense with. It's not something you can call up a conversion 20 years ago in which you really meant it, so now I'm free to go my own way. No. We must grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only two options. Um, Back to Hebrews chapter 6. The only two options he gives is leaving behind the elementary things, moving forward, maturing, or falling away. Those are the two things he gives. Just like he said, you either grow into solid food or you lose the milk. Uh, now, he says this again in Hebrews chapter 1, this two, this sort of these two alternatives, either growing, pressing in, moving forward, or losing what you have. He, this is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Same thing. He says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Notice more careful attention. Increase. Mature. Become more interested, not less. Become more curious, not less. Become more interested in the wisdom of God shaping my life, not less. Grow in it. Don't settle. Move forward. Okay, so that, why? We do not drift away. Do you see that? Those are the two options. Pressing in, taking in more, or drifting away. Second Peter, I got I, I to gotta quote this because this is exactly how Peter closes his second letter where he, he says the same thing. Here's these, these alternative realities. Closes the letter by saying, therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard. He's talking to Christians. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away, carried away by the error of lawless men in fall from your secure position. Christians, 
How do you, what's the answer to that? What's the answer? How do we not get carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from our secure position? Does Jake have that up there? Yes, there it is. But, notice what it says. Grow in the grace, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But grow. Don't get carried away, but grow. And I think what this, like I said before, I think this, what this respects is that we are dynamic beings. We're always taking things in. We're always learning. We're always being shaped. Our values are always being molded. Our heart is always being warmed by something, right? There is something changing our perceptions every moment. Now, when we watch a Netflix movie, there are values and perceptions that have informed the production of that movie. And we're taking that in. We're listening. I'm not saying that we're just mindless automatons. We can discern. But here's the point, is that as we gain the wisdom of God, as we take this in, this has to inform so that we know how to interact with all of that, with wisdom, discerning good and evil, because we have the mind of Christ, right? That's what he's saying. Otherwise, Christ will be displaced. It will happen. Other things will shape your values. Other things will take over your affections. Other things will move you. The devil is not inactive. The world is not an inert place. It's very dynamic, very active, and so are you. You're a busy person. You're an active person. Right? So am I. Taking on things, listening, perceiving, Shaping, value shaping at work, value shaping, what's important, what's not important, always, always happening, right? And so recognizing that, he's saying, so knowing that, we must pay more close attention to what we have heard. Never stop learning. Never stop growing. Never stop being excited by the things of God because there is so much to discover about God as he's revealed it here. It's like, whoa. That's what we should be, right? I'm going to be watching the New England Patriots. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be watching the New England Patriots this afternoon. And I'm hoping when I see Mac Jones play, I say more than once, whoa. Right? But I'm telling you, we need to be engaging like this with God. We come to God and we say, wow, Melchizedek. We come to God and we say, wow, the inner, the inner room of the sanctuary where only, only the high priest could go. Jesus went, but not only that, he opened it up. Remember when he was crucified, what happened? The, the curtain dividing the inner sanctuary from everywhere else was ripped, which says you are now invited into the inner place of the sanctuary, which is symbolic of the new creation, the new world in which God lives and dwells with his people. And you look at him face to face, just like the high priest going in. And we're there and we're basking as high priests ourselves, priests in the, right? We're a holy priesthood in the new covenant, right? We go into that and we bask in the glory of God. This is the truth of God from beginning to end. We need to be amazed, not bored. We need to be amazed. You need to get up from your Bible and say, wow, I can't believe I just read that, right? But that takes time. It's going to take some work, it takes some prayer. It takes, it's like the more you know, the more it excites you. Like, I have zero appreciation for classical music. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I'm ignorant. I don't know what I'm hearing. But then I'll hear somebody describe classical music, and they're talking about what's happening, and the weaving in, and notes coming together and coming apart, and then weaving back in again, all this complexity. If I knew about it, I would probably be amazed by it. Like, wow, that's brilliant. I'd probably be moved to tears. I've seen people move to tears by classical music. I don't understand it. 
But I do understand it. If I understood it, I'd be moved to tears. And I feel like this is the same with us. As we get in and as we just just fellowship with God through the word, we discover everything he's done, everything he's about to do, everything he's moving us to do now, what the significance of our lives as image bearers in this world. Um, Like we're about to talk about missions in this church and some meetings this afternoon, very important. But that's really what that is about, is bearing the image of God to the outside world. You're a representative of the living God. But we've got to come back to the, to the knot. He says here, this is a hard one. Um, and I'm taking a shot at it. And I'm praying for God's wisdom, for me, for you, that we understand this correctly. Because he's motivating. When he says, for it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Okay, he's saying there's an impossibility of that happening. And the trouble with that is we read about people, as we know, like David. Come on. David fell away from the old covenant Torah. He committed murder. He committed adultery. As was pointed out in our Bible study by Cindy, great insight, there are no sacrifices for those things. He, he lied. When I read that story sometimes, I get angry. It's like, how could, you, how could you be so low as to take a faithful Israelite, send him to the front lines, have him murdered, essentially, and steal his wife as the king of Israel? How low is that? And yet when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he broke, he wept, and he pleaded for mercy. He begged in Psalm 51 that the, that the Lord would not take the Holy Spirit from him. Interesting. He, 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 he didn't presume upon the grace of God. You know, he didn't go into that saying, well, God will forgive me. No, that's presumptuous. He didn't do that. He was confronted and he was broken before God. And so what did God do? He forgave him. He penned Psalm 51 as a celebration of the well of God's forgiveness and mercy. Um, I have this experience in my own life. My um, youngest child, Sarah, who's now in her 20s, um, she walked away from the Lord. Um, I could tell. We'd have family quiet time. We'd have family Bible studies, and she'd be like the last one there. <laughs> and then she'd sit down with like a huff and kind of slam her Bible on the sofa, like, okay, I'm here. You know, in body, not in heart and mind. We knew it. We were praying. Lynn and I were discussing what is going on. How do we deal with this? Finally, we had a discussion with her. And I said, what is it, Sarah? And I've probably told this story before. I don't know. Forgive me if I have. But this is a profound moment in our lives. I said, what is it? Is it, is it about the resurrection? Do you, what, is, are there, is it about the inspiration of the scripture? Is it about, what is it about this that, you know, that, you're, that it's leading you to walk away? And she said, Dad, I don't want to believe I don't want this. I want to do what I want to do. I don't, and, and I'm putting words in her mouth now, but I think this is in essence what she's saying. I don't want to be shaped and molded by anybody else but myself. I want to go into my life discerning good and evil the way I want to discern good and evil. I don't want any authority over me dictating how I should dress, what I should listen to, what I should do. I don't want that. I want to be free. And I didn't know what to do at that point. Um, You know, she thought I would be angry, and I understand why. But I, I said, I'm not angry. I mean, I love you, and I'll always love you. But I just said to her, you know, we have nothing better to give you. Nothing. 
And I hope one day you see that. There's nothing better than Jesus. And we prayed. And um, she's not a really verbal person. So she didn't write like a three-page letter when she came back. She just came back. She just started going to church and started reading her Bible. And there was one sermon that Pastor Scott preached one day. She was sitting right over over in that area right there. And my wife and I, it was was about pride and and humility. And she was very proud. And she just melted. You could see her shoulders. She just started to cry. And I was just like, oh, God, thank you. Thank you. But see, she didn't presume upon the grace of God, right? She didn't go off saying, well, oh, God will forgive me. She came broken. Because I have to tell you something else, something else that was instrumental to this whole process. She had a dream. And I'm not a charismatic person. I'm a, I'm a Baptist, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so we didn't teach our kids, look, be looking for dreams. You know, it wasn't anything like that. She just had one. But it wasn't a good dream. It was a dream involving fire and anger and being hunted down. And it scared her. She was afraid. And she said, I don't want that to be me. It was a dream of the, of the, of the day of the Lord. And she was on the wrong side. And she, it bro- the part of the process of breaking her And she's now back today, walking with the Lord, teaching her little child and loving her husband. And they've got a wonderful Christian home. But all this to say, you've got David, you've got my daughter, and now you've got this impossibility, once you have fallen away, to be brought back to the faith. What is he meaning there? And I think what he means is something like what Jesus said in Matthew 19, when Jesus rejected or... The, the rich young ruler rejected Jesus and walked away. Um, and Jesus made a pretty strong statement that that guy was not going to be saved. And then the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And God said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, right? So coming back after falling away, is a practical impossibility for human beings. Once you've tasted the power of the coming age, once you've tasted the glories of Jesus, once you've fellowshiped with the Holy Spirit, and then you decide, you know what? I like these other things better. You've made a choice. Your preference has led you away from Jesus. And humanly speaking, it's impossible for you to then redevelop a taste for Jesus, to re-energize our hunger for God, okay? The only way that happens is through the power of God who works the impossible, right? He does the impossible. He does the impossible thing. Um, And so I think what he's doing here is he's using this statement to, to frighten them, Right? In a good way. Like sometimes being frightened is a good thing. It saves you. It helps you. But he's, he's leading them to say, no, do not play with this becoming cold toward God. Don't play with, you need to hunger for him and you need to learn about him and you need to delight in him. You need to grow in him. I think that's the point here. Um, It's kind of like, and I was just thinking about, I'm sorry, I use hiking illustrations uh, a lot. Was it? It's noontime. Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm just going to use one. And I think this is the urgency of this situation is leading to this sort of hyperbolic, shocking statement. Um, there was one time we were hiking up in the White Mountains above the tree line, and it gets cold up there. It can be like 70 in the valley and can be like 30 on top of the mountain. This is some of the worst weather in the world. And we were up there hiking, and it got to be a pouring. It started out a nice day, but it turned into a pouring, driving rain with wind. And the, the temperatures dropped into, like, the, the low 40s, really cold. So we just started moving off the mountain as quickly as we could. And then we heard a voice behind us saying, hey, can we follow you guys? Like, okay. 
the trail's clearly marked. It's not like you can really get lost. So, okay, and they came out. They had shorts and T-shirts, and they were trail runners in great shape, but not prepared for the weather. And so we were walking along, and I noticed he started shaking, like a lot. And that's, that's the first sign of hyperthermia, because your body temperature is dropping, and so your body goes into these convulsive shakes to, to shake your muscles to generate heat. So it's kind of an emergency measure that your body goes into, but that's a bad sign, because your, your core, you're sinking into like really bad body temperatures. And the next step is your mind, you start losing your reason. And that's how people get lost. So they'll lose their direction. I don't know, like they were saying, can we follow you guys? Now I'm wondering, maybe they were just having a hard time negotiating things. But and then all of a sudden he, he said, oh, my legs hurt, I need to sit down. And I knew what was happening, he was cramping. And so we're on top of this mountain. And it's hard just to get yourself down, right? And when they go up to save somebody, they bring a big thing, a big rack, and there's like six of them carrying, negotiating the rocks. There's three of us, or four of us, and this guy who wants to sit down, he's shaking, his legs are cramping. So what I said to him is I had to get really firm, and I said to him, you need to get up. We're not carrying you down this mountain. We, we cannot carry you. We're not carrying you down. You need to move. Because I knew, I knew cramps. He's not injured. And I told him, you're not injured. It hurts. You need to get up and go. Now, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's like, we're not. And I think it's sort of what this is, though. What I did, I did that to get him to move. Um, and he did. And he got up. And, he, and we gave him a wool sweater and helped him down the mountain. But I think it's something like this is going on here. It's the urgency is don't mess around because it's impossible if you fall away. If you walk away and, and enter a life of deliberate sinning, no sacrifice for sins is left until God does the impossible, right? But the point is do not presume upon that. And he goes on to say, though, even though we speak like this, dear friends, verse 9, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you, see, here's the love he has for them, our desire, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Amen. That's what we want. Let's pray. Lord, you are an amazing, an amazing God. And Lord, these are strong, strong warnings. Um, but Lord, we know they're authored by the Holy Spirit for our good. Lord, and I pray that you would move in us, that we would mature, that we would hunger, that we would study, that we would pray. Lord, that we would be shaped and molded. That we would not conform to the pattern of this world. But we would be transformed, Lord, by the renewing of our minds. That our perceptions would be sharpened. Lord, that we would be wise, discerning people. Glorifying you. Giving you praise, Lord, through our lives. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.